This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one. In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash Travel today to get a free audiobook and 30 day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from San Juan, Puerto Rico. In fact, we're in the Condado District at La Concha Resort. It's a renaissance resort right here in Condado. It is really wonderful to be back in Puerto Rico, especially in the midst of an amazing, resilient recovery. After such a devastating experience during Hurricane Maria, the, the numbers keep changing. Uh, the most recent report, which is wild, is that the Puerto Rican government just acknowledged in a new report that in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, more than 1,400 people likely died. That's roughly, get this, 20 times the previous number that had been provided. So we're talking serious devastation. Not 64 lives were lost. We're talking to 1,427. 1,427 people lost their lives. The infrastructure damage was, was substantial. Uh, the power grid was gone. Uh, the cellular phone grid was gone. The water supply was was compromised in ways that you don't even want to know. And you got to hand it to the Puerto Rican people, not the not the government, not FEMA. Uh, you know, we're talking basically NGOs and just citizens who said, you know what, we're going to fix this. 
We're going to bring it back, and slowly but surely they have. Um, and the good news is so many of Puerto Rico's natural wonders have remained intact. Mona Island, El Yunque, America's only tropical rainforest. Yes, it suffered damage. Some of it's still not open, but a lot of it is. It is a remarkable destination and well worth a visit anytime you come here. We're talking 28,000 acres of plants and hardwood trees and cloud forests, rivers, waterfalls, you name it. You know, the best thing for me when I go to a city, there, there are things I always like to do. I like to walk. I like to look up. There's amazing things that you see when you do that. Uh, I like to uh, uh, talk to the fire captains because they, they've been in everybody's home. They've been in everybody's building. And I always like to talk to people like my next guest because they give me the history that nobody else can give me. And my next guest is Carlos Morgal, who's the vice president of the Puerto Rico Historic Building Drawing Society. There you go. There's, say that three times fast. <laughs> but if you want to know the history, it's not just old San Juan. It's Puerto Rico itself, isn't it? It's the whole island. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for, for inviting us over here. Oh, not a problem. I mean, when you, you know, when you research all the stuff that you research, when you talk about, you know, the archival stuff as well as just the heritage of the architecture here, what, what comes to mind? Well, um, what, what we like to do, we, we educate more than, more than anything. And what we want to bring to everybody's attention is what they don't, why they should look up like you do. Because no, not, not everybody does. Well, you know, for example, if I'm in, in, in New York, you got to look up. Because what you see on the outside of the buildings, and I'm not just talking about the gargoyles. I'm talking <laughs> about just the attention to detail from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. I mean, I live in a building in New York that was built in 1929. It was made out of the kind of steel you couldn't get today. And yet, if you look up, you see how, how much it was important to the people who built that building to leave their mark. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and all San Juan and the whole island, for that matter, especially in the, we have 78 municipalities. And each municipality at the core of, of their towns are made from those exact artisans who are, who are not builders, they're actually were artisans. And that's one of the things we want to bring out to people. Of course, one of the tragedies of this, and I'm not particular to, to, to San Juan, but to every place, mm -hmm. is has that artisan work been handed down? I mean, because, you know, people would say, oh, they don't build them like that anymore. That is true. Uh, that's what, that, that was one of the big things on the island that they started uh, a whole uh, a pl a plastic arts school at the Old San Juan exactly to provide people the knowledge they needed and, and, to, and to have all that information to come down. So, so more hands would keep on doing that. However, some of it, it's lost and, and, and that's why it's very, very important to us to, to preserve and, and, and to maintain that because they don't build them as they did. I know. <laughs> but the good news is, hurricane notwithstanding, you've been able to save a lot. We, we have. We have. We, I, I believe that, that our organization has, has successfully reached out to local and to outside people uh, and make them conscious and, and even the government it's listening to us now because they, they didn't see, always they, they didn't always listen they didn't they didn't but 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 now we even have very good partnership with uh tourism company for example it's one that 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 we started fairly recently and and it, ha it has been very very successful to get the word out and that's one of the main reasons we give the tours because not only the research we do is we need to reach out to people face-to-face, -face, like we're talking right now, and, and pointing out 
those very, very important architectural elements that are embedded within our history. And before we get to the tours, let's just talk about a recap of post-hurricane. Yeah. Because buildings were destroyed. Yes, it was hard. Interestingly enough, I think that those that were really, really well built, we stand it, we stand it time. Well, you know, when I talk to the guys at the National Park Service, and they talk about the castle, and they say, look, this was a, a castle built to keep the sea out of Puerto Rico, <laughs> and it worked. Yeah, you it know, did. I mean, it, it was really built big, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh I mean, and, and... It was a oh, fortress. It is a fortress, and it was, it was meant to keep everybody inside safe, and, and it did. I mean, it, Mother Nature threw a big, big ball to it, and, and it withstanded all, all, the, all the walls of the city, withstanded the, the rain, the water, the winds, without, without any problems. Other houses, residential places, not with that much uh, economic power behind them, did suffer. You know some. what? I would make a bet, just going back to my own experience, because I live on an island too, mm -hmm. that the, the, the places that were built in the 60s and the 70s, they mm -hmm. were in trouble. Yeah, probably I think you're right. Talking with Carlos Mergal from the Puerto Rico Historic Building Drawing Society, you know, about what the damage was done during Maria. We're coming up on the one-year anniversary. Mm -hmm. What lessons were learned? Well, that... You know, because we said they don't build them the way they used to. <laughs> that is that is so true. Because um, the reason why I'm asking that mm -hmm. question is, have they changed the building codes? They're on the they're, they're actually on that process as we speak. Um, our building codes um, are, are mostly from the California, which are very, very, very strict. Um, the, the problem is not having the building code, the problem is enforcing that code. And that's one of the things that I think are, it's, it's, they're trying to apply now, for, especially for people. What we learned, we learned that you never prepare enough. Uh, whatever is built correctly, it's standard, where whatever seems that it, it's not built correctly, it, it, it didn't. It, it blew it, away. It took off. It, yeah. it blew away, and it was really, really hard. And it's and and what the wind took was maybe a fallacy of 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 of, of a structure that it wasn't ready enough. The grid, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, there was a substantial loss of life. There was. Everybody's disputing the actual yeah, uh, the numbers. fatalities, but you know, you never make light of that. Uh, although some people would say now, you know, in the irony of things, it allowed people now, it's sort of like a forced renovation, a forced rebuilding, where people can actually not just learn from those lessons, but apply them. Apply them, yeah. And I, and I believe, I, I strongly believe that, that we are we are very resilient as a, as a nation, as people, um, and, and that is going to show up. That, that is gonna, that's going to surpass whatever tragedies we, we, we endured and suffered. However, it's going to take some time, and, and, it, and it has, I mean, almost a year after it, and, and people are still fixing roads, fixing places, having light posts getting back to us. So, so from, all, from all ends, uh, everything is going to be new, and hopefully we're not getting it. And the cool thing about all this is that you're giving tours. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because you can actually show the history of Puerto Rico through taking the tours of, of looking at the buildings. Exactly, and, and, and that's, that's, we want to we wanna show people the things they're missing because maybe they don't look at them or they don't know them or they don't understand them because architecture can be appreciated not only, not only from terms of beauty, but from form and function and all those terms and, and how- Not just style, but substance. Exactly, exactly, correct. So, so that's what we want to show, and we want to show the relationship between that history and the history of the whole island. 
So if you really want to have some fun, take an hour or two off the beach and actually see the evolution, really, yeah. of, of an art form. Exactly, and, and, and you'll find every type of style from colonial to modern buildings to art deco buildings. We, we have it all. It's very, very interesting, and we have it all. Uh, on, on, the, on, the, on the San Juan Inlet, it's an amazing place that you discover things every day. We walked that, we walked that city, and we, wanted, we, want, we want that city to be walkable even more than it is right now. We, we're trying for the government to remove the cars from the city, um, although, you know. But this is, this is a walking tour. It, it is a walking tour, so, so. And how often do you do the tour? We do, we do tours about two, three times a week. Um, and we you just got to call ahead and check in. Yeah, exactly. You can you can reach us through through our emails. What's the website? Uh, the website is prhbds.org. <laughs> Sorry, I get always prhbds. <laughs> okay, I get I still get confused. So it's www.prhbds.org. That that's correct. Okay, and and through Facebook. Uh, you can you can reach us and, and check our calendars. Um, it's there. And how long does the tour take? Um, it'll be it'll be about it, they're designed for about an hour and a half. That's easy. That's manageable. Yeah, exactly. It, it ends up being like two two hours because all the questions and and, and, and plus you stop and you look and then you stop and you look. Okay, if I were to take the tour tomorrow, what's the biggest surprise awaiting me? Well, one of, one of the things one of the things we we tend to uh, we tend to put you in places that does not exist anymore. For example, some part of the walls were torn down. So we take your imagination to where those walls were and, and, and we, we take you on a trip of things that are not there, but you can feel them and you can see them. And what about the things that are there? And those that are there, we, we speak about the reality of the built, the reality of the reasons they were there. We remove a lot of urban legends. Uh, like? Like, for example, the cobblestone uh, that the, so the city people used to say that they came as ballasts on the ships, on, on the ships oh, yeah. which weren't true. The, actually, the city in 1890 bought those, those pavers and, and they come from England all the way down and they were... Well, if they came from England, they came on a ship. They, well, they do. They Hello, did. there you go. They, they did, but they, they came in vapors. They, they, they were not brought up by the Spaniards on, right. on their sail ships. I got <laughs> it. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. someone who experienced the problem here and has also experienced the recovery. He's the superintendent of the San Juan National Historic Site, John Bergeron. Mr. Park Service, how are you? Thank you. Thank you, Peter. That's okay. <laughs> By the way, this is radio, but he shook my hand anyway. <laughs> it's, uh, a, it's a Puerto Rican thing. It is a Puerto Rican yeah. thing. Yeah. John, you know, when you think about the damage that happened, first of all, you've you got to put this in perspective. There are six national parks in the Caribbean that most Americans don't even know we have, right? There are three in St. Croix, mm -hmm. right? That's correct. There's one in, what, St. John? Uh, two in St. John. Two in St. John, and, mm -hmm. the, and one here. And one here in Puerto Rico. And some of them took a pretty big hit. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, in terms of parks in the Caribbean, um, San Juan National Historic Site, it took a lot of damage, but compared to the other 
other parks and the other Caribbean islands, um, we were pretty lucky. Well, let's update me on those. Let's talk about St. John and St. Croix. Okay. Uh, St. John was the, the worst hit. Um, it got hit by Irma, Hurricane Irma. It was the first to be hit uh, of all the— Because Maria came in next. And Maria came in three weeks later. Yeah. But Irma did uh, a lot of devastation there, um, probably more so than the other, the other two, all the other parks combined. I mean, in terms of dollar figures, we're talking a lot. Um, you know, upwards of $80 million. That's a lot of damage. Um, over half the housing, uh, park housing, uh, was as un uninhabitable. And still? Still. Wow. And St. Croix? Uh, St. Croix, not as bad. Um, they had a few million dollars in damage, but um, just like uh, um, San Juan, we had a couple million dollars in damage, too. But, you know, when you think of, of the site that you control, which includes El Moro and, and, and basically part of old San Juan here, mm -hmm. I mean, that was built in, what, 1500? Took almost 200 years to finish this thing. The walls are, what, 17 feet thick? Yeah, I mean, this We're is talking a, fortress. Yeah, this is a fortress. It was designed to take a beating. And um, uh, a hurricane, even with hurricane winds, um, it, it, it didn't do a lot of damage to, the, to the, the fort itself. The damage that we saw was... Uh, a lot of cosmetic stuff, um, uh, you know, uh, fencing, uh, signs, uh, um, our transportation system, all of our trams were damaged. Um, we had some retaining wall damage, um, but for the most part, uh, the fort is still here. It's, it's open to the public. And let's not forget, it was built initially back then 400 years ago or mm -hmm. almost 500 years ago mm -hmm. to keep the water out of the city. Um, I mean, that was part of it, but I mean, really, this fort here was to protect the, the uh, you know, an invasion from sea. I mean, it was here to protect the bay from uh, the enemy from getting into the bay and attacking um, the city of Old San Juan, which, uh, as the name says, this was a major uh, thoroughfare for people coming from Europe to get uh, gold. They were here for the riches, you know. Exactly. And so the name, Puerto Rico. So you're open for business? We are open for business. I mean, we've been open since uh, early December, ended November. We started opening San Cristobal end of November, and then official opening was in December. But it's also a matter of just getting the word out because, you know, look, Americans, I have to say this, as an American, mm -hmm. are the most geographically ignorant people on the face of the planet. <laughs> you know, when you had the oil spill in the Gulf, people weren't going to Fort Lauderdale because they thought the oil was there. Right. It wasn't. Yeah. Um, you know, the recovery from, from this in, in, in Puerto Rico, obviously you, you still have people who don't have power. Mm -hmm. You still have people up in the mountains who are, are without basic services. Right. But in an economy where the, the, the GDP of Puerto Rico's economy, we're talking over 12%, mm -hmm. that is travel and tourism. You don't mess with that because if you mess with that, you don't operate. No, I, I, the, the key thing to remember that this is a staple for Puerto Rico. I mean, it's not like... You know, they're trying a lot of new different things to try to bring in business, but tourism, it is always there. And it's, you know, it's, it's a renewable source of income. Um, it's not industry-driven that's you know, can have its peaks and its valleys. Tourism is pretty con consistent here for Puerto Rico, and it brings in a lot of revenue. Um, so, yeah, it's very important to Puerto Rico. And then, of course, you're the home to the only uh, tropical rainforest in the United States. Yeah, that, that's El Yunque National yeah. Forest. And so it's also a, a major staple for the tourism industry here. I mean, um, there's a lot of great sites here in Puerto Rico. We have uh, Bacardi. We have El Yunque. You had um, to mention Bacardi? Yes, it's one, it's one of my favorite places so to go. So in the event of a hurricane, just go drink rum? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> it's an official I, statement from the National <laughs> Park Service? No, that's no, not official. Okay. <laughs> Don't quote me no, on that. No, I just did. <laughs> no, but, but I want to go back to El Yonke because they took a big hit too. They did, and they're, they're still recovering. I mean, they have a lot of trail work they, they still need to complete. Um, the, there's 
the roads there. You can still get in. You can still get in, um, but some of the roads towards the top are still unpassable. There, there's still threats of landslides and things like that. So um, while the park is open, they're open for business or welcoming visitors, um, there's still a lot of work there to be done. I mean, I went in yesterday. I went through another trail into the Yokohoo Tower mm -hmm. and was able to climb the tower, and yeah. it, it, you could do it. And I yeah. went down to the river. It was yeah. great. Yeah, there's still great places to go see. There's still things to go. The visitor center, um, it had a lot of damage, but they're... they're um, they're starting to fix things slowly but surely. So, I mean, um, you know, while there's still recovery going on, we are open for business. Don't get me wrong. The fort's here. It's not going anywhere anytime soon, and we're open for business. And, you know, we all talk about, in, in, in the travel industry as a whole, storm or no storm, mm -hmm. you know, the public-private partnerships. Yep. I mean, this is a situation where everybody had to work together. You mm -hmm. had to work with the private sector. They had to work with you. Mm -hmm. uh, governments had to, like, sort of, like, loosen regulations to at least get things in fast. I mean, because yeah. it was unprecedented. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't here immediately um, after Maria. I was actually helping out St. John. I, mem I mentioned that Irma really devastated St. John. So I was there after St. John, and I can tell you that um, in any recovery effort to this on this scale, it involves a lot of private-public partnerships. The recovery on St. John wouldn't have happened, just like here, it wouldn't have happened without our private partners. The local citizens that volunteered to help carry food, bring food off the ships to... Uh, Help establish, uh, help establish communications for the first times. Just getting word out was a challenge. Just to say, help, please send help for us, was a challenge initially after the hurricanes. So, I mean, it was um, amazing effort bringing everybody together to work together. And it was, it was really amazing to see everybody work together like that. And, of course, one of the things that always comes to mind to me, and we talked about this just at the beginning of the segment, <laughs> is the opportunity to volunteer. People yeah. can still come down here on their vacation and volunteer. That's true. I mean, there's still tons of projects to get done. Um, you know, the, um, the, after the hurricanes, there was still a lot of damage, and there's still a lot of things that we need to get done. Lighting, um, you know, air beautification, cleanups, uh, you name it. There's just a lot of stuff that And here's done. the cool part about that. You can come down here on vacation, volunteer a morning, afternoon, even a weekend, mm -hmm. and work with the people who live here. And, and by the way, who better to give you a tour when you're done than the people who actually live here? I know. They can show you all the great spots to go to. That are not in the brochure, that are not in the guidebooks, right. that are all cool. All the little secret beaches and the little hideaways that they don't tell everybody, all the tourists to. Come down, volunteer, and I'm sure they'll give you some insight of some really good places to go. And if you ask for John Bergeron, he'll even give you his ideas. That's true. I will. <laughs> What's been your biggest challenge? Um, my biggest challenge is uh, basically just kind of getting staff hired and on board uh, to try to gear up for the recovery. I mean, uh, we got a lot of money to help us um, get projects done, but we really need the support to hire people to, um, to actually get the projects done. I mean... It's one thing to have so the it money. So it wasn't an issue of the money. It was an issue of just being able to implement. Implement the projects. That's our, that's our challenge now. we gotta, we got to act. we got to get stuff done. And um, it takes people. It takes people to get that done. And it's, it's a challenge. You know, we want to do it smartly. We, wanna, we just don't want to go back and fix things the way they were. If there's a chance to make an improvement so it doesn't get damaged again in the future, we want to take a step back and reevaluate those Give things. Give me one example of that. Um, let's say retaining wall. There's a retaining wall here that failed. Old, very old, historic wall. Um, it turned out it wasn't the wall. We did a study on it. It wasn't the wall that failed. The wall cracked a little bit. Um, but um, what it turns out to be, it was just the water weight behind the wall that pushed sand underneath the wall. 
And so we're going to go back. Very simple solution. We had a big project to fix it. We're going to install a pipe, a drain pipe, that will carry the water from behind the wall, around the wall. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. My next guest, I welcome him back. We've uh, we've done the show from Puerto Rico before. He's the uh, the chair of the history department at the University of Puerto Rico, Professor Luis Agre. How are you, sir? Nice to be back. Nice to have you back. The last time I was here, there was no hurricane recovery. There was no hurricane. It was a very very difficult time. Uh, it was tragic, catastrophic. In fact, um, afterwards, people tend to focus so much on the catastrophe that they tended to lose sight of the people and the, and the land that experienced the catastrophe. So uh, we had to work very hard to get away from this catastrophic mode or paradigm and get back into a resiliency mode. Well, because when you're focused on catastrophe, you're almost paralyzed. You're almost paralyzed and you assume that the catastrophe is permanent, whereas what's permanent is the land and the people. Well, you know, in, in normal times, when we talk about the travel industry, which a service industry. I tell everybody, you want to tell me about excellence in the travel industry? It's not when they deliver the service, it's how they recover. And the same thing applies to Puerto Rico now. Certainly did, and, and does, because the recovery is far from over. But uh, I was in a, in a lecture, and somebody asked me about, about the tragedy, and I mentioned the old uh, classic definition of tragedy, uh, of comedy, which is tragedy plus time equals comedy. And that at that time, we thought we would never laugh again. And we're laughing again. We're laughing now, so I guess the uh, the message is come back and laugh with us. Yes, and you know you've been actually you know you can add the proper perspective and context to all this because you've seen it before, during, and now. Right. There's a very very good book on uh, on Sea of Storms, the history of, of uh, hurricanes in the Caribbean, and how uh, our society has been shaped by such natural disasters. And uh, I think we've, we've done very well. The people well, of Puerto Rico have done as, very well. As someone who studies this, how has the society in Puerto Rico been reshaped by Maria? Well, part of, uh, of the problem has been the, that we experienced this after 10 years of economic contraction. You were so already in trouble. We were already in trouble. Uh, and uh, the immediate um, impact is of, of a loss of a lot of jobs in all sectors. So there's been an outward migration, people going to live in the United States who most likely will return at some point or other. Uh, but now uh, the people who are here and the enterprises that remained, and with the help of groups from the United States, particularly the Puerto Rican diaspora, uh, I think we have uh, bounced really very, very strongly and things look good. What were the lessons that you learned that you weren't prepared for after Maria? The first lesson I learned is that I was very glad I moved to a five-story building to live <laughs> instead of a high-rise because we, we had to spend about two months just walking up and down the stairs. Secondly is, is how we misjudged the tropic. We, with the technology, we think we're not in the tropics and that we're not subject to the events of the tropics, such as hurricanes. And I think that now we're going to be much more attuned with our own reality, uh, both physical and human. I think that's the, the, the best I've learned. You know, one of the things that uh, I've discovered in the last couple of weeks, in fact, it was just recently announced, is the amount of support coming in from some unlikely sources 
like Lin Manuel Miranda, you know, the star of Hamilton. He's bringing the he's bringing the production down here. And that is a remarkable experience. They're going to have a three run, three week run, with Lin Manuel uh, doing Hamilton again. Uh, who knows when he's going to do it after this? Or and, ever again. Or ever again, right? Uh, and all of the proceeds are going to cultural institutions, beginning with the University of Puerto Rico. The, uh, we had refurbished our theater uh, several years ago, and it suffered heavily. Uh, about a million dollars are going to be invested in, in, uh, in the theater to other cultural groups. It's a great sense of pride that uh, what, what Lin-Manuel has done. And, uh, and he was down here from day one just about helping out. He's been here several times since the hurricanes, and this has been his idea, uh, and he's been extremely generous, extremely generous. Riding along in my automobile, my baby beside me at the wheel, cruising and playing the radio, with no particular place to go. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. I have an admission to make. Uh, it's an admission I've made on the show before. Uh, I'm a chocoholic. Um, I, and, and it's amazing to me where they make chocolate around the world. You know, it's not just Switzerland, it's not just Belgium. Um, and, uh, you know, they're making chocolate in Abu Dhabi and they're making chocolate in, in Tasmania and they're, and they're making chocolate everywhere. And they're making chocolate in Puerto Rico and my next guests know a little bit about that because they're the founders and owners of Chocobar and Casa Cortez and it's Elaine Shabab and Annalisa Gonzalez. Hi, guys. Hi. Well, but, but the whole chocolate thing started with you because it's in your family because your, your, your folks were making, before you ever opened the restaurant, your folks were making chocolate here for how many years? 90 years. Yeah, it's but who's counting? It's not me. It's my husband's it's, family company. Uh, yeah, but you know what? It's you. Come on. Uh, <laughs> but the point is, you know, in, in, a, in the Caribbean, in, in a climate like this, it's different than making chocolate in Switzerland. It's different than making chocolate in, in Belgium, right? Different. Yes. Well, but the source is here. So the source. The cacao, the cacao yes, is here. Yes. Well, all the research for cocoa for the United States is in Puerto Rico. Nobody knows that. Nobody knows that. And they've studied over 400 varieties of cocoa here. And uh, most of our cocoa uh, comes from Dominican Republic, which is the seventh largest producer of cocoa beans in the world. Now, I spent a lot of time in Ecuador. They, spend a, they grow a lot of cacao there. Well, Dominican Republic grows more than Ecuador, I really? think. Really? Yes. And most of your American chocolate has Dominican cocoa in its formulas. That's Elaine Shilhab. Okay, I have, an, I have another question for you, though. It's the cacao question. Everybody now, to try to be hip, is talking about 60% cacao, 90%. We never would have heard that five years ago. So explain that to me. Well, um, chocolate is actually a superfood, uh, but it's not the sugar or the milk. It's the cocoa. And it's proven scientifically that it's good for your health. It's good for your heart. It makes you feel good. That's proven. And makes you feel guilty. <laughs> well, it makes you feel guilty when you have it with sugar and milk. But if you have it dark, yeah. it's healthy. Okay, so then I'm very guilty. <laughs> 
Most people like milk chocolate. No, see, I like dark chocolate. Oh, well. I grew up loving milk chocolate, then I acquired the dark chocolate taste. Mm, yes. Right? I think we all did a lot of that when yes. we were kids, right? Because most of the candy we ate as kids was not dark chocolate. It was no. milk chocolate, right? Yes. Yeah. So, Adelisa, tell me this. The restaurant came about because... Well, the restaurant came about because it was a unique opportunity after Elaine and her husband, Don Ignacio Cortez, researched around the world uh, looking for what may or not exist, which is what they had envisioned. Uh, they learned that it was a unique opportunity to open a full menu restaurant and in all San Juan, Puerto Rico, as a great opportunity to showcase a family of, a, of, of 90 years of not only producing high-quality cacao, but also committed to the cultural and educational uh, projects in the Caribbean, mainly in Puerto Rico. Because the two passions of the family are art and chocolate. And so our mission in the Choco Bar is to delight your palate with our passion for chocolate. But at the foundation, our mission is to educate and inspire with our passion for the arts of the Caribbean. So Casa Cortez, we present it as the cultural and gastronomic center of the Cortez family, a Puerto Rican family that has been in the chocolate making business all these years that we're mentioning, and it was a great experience to create for people, not just to go to a restaurant, to go to a delicious restaurant with the <laughs> common ingredient across all menu items, which is the Cortez okay, chocolate. Well, well, that obviously brings up right. my next question is, when you say it's the common ingredient across the entire menu, every, every item on the menu? If, if you order eggs, Benedict, the salt is chocolate. <laughs> So we use. So you sneak it in there whenever yes, you can. Yes, we use it as an ingredient in almost every bite. Well, and you're serving breakfast on brunch all day on the We weekends. serve brunch all day on weekends, but yeah. we have a full service menu where we serve breakfast, tapas, drinks, cocktails. Okay, let's talk about we brunch. Serve. If I ordered French toast, is that on the menu? Oh, yes, yes, of course. Chocolate, chocolate yes. <laughs> or the chocolicious mega waffles, which are one of my favorites. So th th does a stretcher come with that, too? They, they, when you're done, <laughs> they, can, they can take you out? Well, no, you we know, invite you to go upstairs, <laughs> yeah. burn some calories, visiting our galleries, ah, so that go. they can appreciate contemporary art, mainly Caribbean, um, and also learn about their, the, one of the most recent corporate social responsibility projects, which is Fundacion Casa Cortez, which yeah. is above the Choco Bar. Well, one of the things I want to talk about when we come back, obviously, is we're, we're nearing the one-year anniversary of Maria? Yes. Uh, you guys were impacted? Yes. As Not everybody that else. much. No, but you, but you helped out. Yes. And I want to talk about what the community did and what the community is still doing because the recovery process, it's, it, still it's, going. it's going to be ongoing for quite some time. That's correct. Even though stores are open for business, this hotel is open, this hotel, by the way, never closed, but a lot of hotels are still not open and they're, and they're starting to come back. The question is, how do you keep the community together? while all of this is going on. That's always the challenge, whether it was Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans and what happened there, uh, and, and of course what happened with Maria with you guys. Let's go back to that terrible period of the hurricane and the post-hurricane. Everybody was affected, nobody could ignore it. Goods and services were interrupted, infrastructure was destroyed. All of San Juan and all of Puerto Rico is essentially a construction zone starting you know, eight, nine months ago. A lot of it's still going on. I was out at the, at the rainforest today. It's not totally reopened, but they're getting there. You know, The beaches are open, not all the hotels have reopened. How did you guys get involved in the recovery? Well, luckily, when we constructed the restaurant, we put a generator 
on the roof. Good move. Yes, so we were pretty well prepared, and thank God only the air conditioners uh, fell from, from the base. So basically, our restaurant wasn't that affected. We came to check it. You could still operate. Yes, we came to, in the next day after the hurricane, we came to check and to turn on the generator so our, our food wouldn't spoil. Did you have running water? We had, run, we had running water. At that time, we had running water, and we also had a reserve of water as well. So we were prepared. Um, and... Uh, the next day, we came, we, at night we would go to turn off the generator, and at, in the mornings we'd go to turn it on. The second day after the storm, people started lining up. Because they knew you were open. Well, we just opened a window, because it was scary. It was scary, that, you know, it was desolate and scary. Nobody's on the street? There was nobody, uh, weird people on the street. Only weird people on the street, but when we opened the window, people started lining up. And so our architect who lives on the corner, and Adelisa, and our chef, and one employee who showed up started making Mallorca sandwiches. Which are? It's a Spanish sweet bread that is very typical of Puerto Rico, and we always have that for breakfast with egg, ham, and cheese, and hot chocolate, and a bottle of water. So we did that for $5. We, we would do that in the mornings and serve eggs in the mornings, and uh, uh, for lunch, we'd make a big pot of something hot. And just everybody could have it. So everybody could have it because there weren't that many, nothing was available. So we had to use what we had and we had to share it. So we made a big pot of like rice and beans and something that people... But how did you get all the sourcing for we the We had it. You already we had, had it. it. Okay. Yeah. So we used what we had and we shared it and we gave people lunch, a hot meal, water and coffee or chocolate for $5 for about four weeks. We did wow. that every day for about four weeks. Also, there and was... And you, you never ran out? We didn't run out because somehow we managed to find... You, you knew know, a guy who knew a guy. We Yeah, we, we worked it out. We teamed. Our, all our employees showed up and we teamed up and we had a team of, of our workers that went to make the gasoline line and others went to do the, the diesel line. For the and, generator. Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. so that they could come to work also because they didn't have, you know, there was no gasoline. There was no nothing right you know so we had to be very resourceful yeah. and uh, we found out that we had a signal on the roof so we had a little basket up on the roof with two employees and an umbrella and and we were the only people taking credit cards <laughs> Because you had a Wi-Fi signal on the roof. I love we it. We did. We did. In and a little corner. So I little... remember one of the bank guys came every day to get some coffee, and he said, you're taking credit cards. You're doing better than my bank. <laughs> I think what's remarkable yeah. is that it's the, the, the resiliency, the, the way in which we all had knew that we had to focus on first giving food and, and drinkable water to our biggest asset, our employees, and number two, our community in Old San Juan. We were the only ones who opened on the second day after Maria. But you also They'll had be to crying do... in front of us saying, thank you sure. so much for opening. I mean, the, the line will make it all the way to the corner by the Plaza de Armas. But you also had to take care of your employees and their kids. We yes. did. And then that's how Adelisa comes in. That's why I bring her, because our mission is to educate and inspire inspire. So we did, there was no school here for three months. Ooh. So uh, Delisa and 
I decided let's let's open up a school and bring all the children that want to come. It's better for the parents don't know what to do and with the children. And they came to the restaurant. That's what they did. They came to the foundation. To the foundation, which ah, upstairs from upstairs, the restaurant. Same building. Yes. yes. We yeah. had no electricity, but we were able to plug a long, long extension cord from an area so that we could have two literally fans to not be too warm in the hallways, in the, in the exhibit hall. We opened our balcony doors, and we were able to serve 105 children from more than 20 public schools because, like Elaine said, they were closed. Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. My next guest is the food, beverage, lifestyle, and travel editor, say that four times fast, of El Vocero, the newspaper here in San Juan. Jairo Solis, how are you? Fine, thank you. And you, Peter? I'm good. Now, you're originally from the Bay. No, you're not. We're, you're originally from San Juan, aren't you? Yes, I am. And you've been the food editor for 21 years. That's correct. Wow. What have you seen that's changed in San Juan? A lot, especially with a big evolution. Okay, uh, can I tell you my story? I first came here in 1974, 75. It was plantains. Mm-hmm. And more plantains. <laughs> yes, um, maybe um, rice and beans, isn't well, yeah, it? Well, yeah, of course, yes. Yeah, and maybe, uh, uh, you know, con pollo. Yeah, arroz about? con pollo. Oh, of course, but and that was it. And also, asopao is a special food. Yeah, soup. I know. But now there's been a food revolution here. That's correct. We are very high. In, we have very local chef with high techniques in in cooking. So now um, we have lamb chops or dry aged uh, beef or carpaccios or you name it. And, and you're sourcing that locally? Um, not not everything now. No, unfortunately not. But what you are doing though, I mean, I can walk from this hotel maybe in a four block radius and 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 every kind of cuisine is there that's correct you can find everything italian french sushi or japanese even um germany in in old san juan is is quite impressive because we are a small island in the caribbean so now every other place i go to there's a great kind of bizarre contest going on just to see who can have more artisanal breweries than anybody else right i mean any city you go to in america they got like 30 or 40 breweries now same situation in san Yes, it's the same, um, but we also have locally. We have imports, um, artisan beers, and also we have local artisan beers. So, yes, we love it. So you can find with Mavi, also with ginger, with pumpkins, you name it. You name it, it's here. Now, you were one of the originators, at least in Puerto Rico, of the slow food movement. Yeah, we started the, the, the local chapter of slow food in uh, in 2006, actually. Okay, explain slow food to me. Well, slow food is an international movement. Uh, he started in Italy. The name of the founder is Carlos Petrini. He's a, a food editor also. And he was worried because McDonald's arrived to Italy. That, that would be scary. Yeah. <laughs> so he, some, you know, he felt scared and he started um, this movement to promote their tra- food traditions. And then the movement grew through Europe and also through Africa and America and also through the Caribbean. And when was the last time you were at a McDonald's? The truth. <laughs> 
Don't look around the room. The truth. Well, let me think. <laughs> well, my kids love some kind of uh, smoothie. They they do over there. So probably so you've been three wi- weeks you, ago. You've been spotted inside of McDonald's every <laughs> once in a while. But when you say the food scene has changed a lot in the 21 years that you've been here, what's been the biggest surprise to you about the kind of food that's here now? Well, the mo- they start uh, looking the local ingredients and they start using that or them to make created food. Also, um, most of our chef, important chef or celebrity chef, are Puerto Rican, so are local. Because it, at the beginning, we have a lot of European uh, chef in as chef executive chef at the hotel. But now you can find a lot of Puerto Rican executive chef at the hotel. So it means that our chefs are well trained and um, and go to U.S. and Europe to train themselves. And then they became to Puerto Rico and start their own food tradition and creations. Are the food trucks here too? Yes, of course, at every corner. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so I'm going to put you on the spot. I want you to take me to breakfast, lunch, and dinner in the neighborhoods here. Well, well that, that is very hard because you can eat very, I don't very but, well. No, but I'm talking about where you like to hang out. Even in, 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 in every corner. However, if I want to eat lobster, I go to the east, maybe to Pasión for el, Pasión por el Fogón, that is at Fajardo. Um, also at Maquito Restaurant, this at Nahuabo, is also a southeast uh, restaurant. If I want to do something creative with creative Caribbean creative cuisine, I will go to Casa Cataño, that is at the other side to the Bahia de San Juan. Or and when you say some more creative, what do you mean by that? Well, that crea- uh, is a Caribbean creative is ma- mix some maybe fla- Asian flavor with uh, Caribbean flavors. That's a kind of creative. Also, if I want to do, if I want to eat something special, I go to Orujo. It is at Kawas. There is no menu. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast on the new location somewhere around the world. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. 
So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.